0: Exodus 34, verses 11 through 16. This is our passage for today. Exodus 34, 11 through 16. Observe what I command you today. This day, behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare. In your midst, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of the sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters who are after their gods and make your sons who are after their gods. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now this summer, we're, we're going through a, a series of sermons that all have to do with God's character. We're looking at particular aspects of God's character. And today our topic is God's jealousy. The Lord whose name is jealous is jealous a jealous God, is what scripture tells us. Now, if you look at some some classic books on the attributes of God, or even just some of the modern uh, iterations of that that idea of making a list of attributes and, and going through each one is what we're doing this summer, you will find that jealousy is often not on that list. Even some of the great classic works, I found that they skip over jealousy. It's not on that list. And yet the Bible is full of references to God's jealousy. I mean, it's, it's really hard to miss that. If you read the Bible, you will find it all over the place, Old and New Testament. God is presented to be a jealous God. Now, of course, this idea of jealousy is often misunderstood. Oprah Winfrey, for example. Were you expecting an Oprah quote right so early in the sermon? Well, you got it. Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, for example, recalls a church service when the preacher said that God was a jealous God. She was in her late 20s, and she recounts this story several times. You can easily find it online. She was committed to the church, going to every service, tithing, believed in what the church taught. And then that one Sunday in her late 20s, she heard the preacher say, quoting the Bible, that God is a jealous God. And she was so puzzled by that idea that, as she put it, the all loving and all powerful God would be jealous of me, she said. She understood that as God being jealous of her, you know, such a puzzling thing that actually changed her spiritual trajectory altogether. Oprah credits that moment as the beginning of her spiritual path, which led her away from the church and biblical Christianity. Now, if like Oprah, we simply attribute our idea and our experience of jealousy to God, the way we understand jealousy, and now we say God is like that, which is, I think, what happened in Oprah's mind, we might as well agree with the militant atheist Richard Dawkins who said that the God of the Bible is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it. Dawkins is famous for not just arguing against Christianity, but making Christianity appear to be deplorable. And one of his problems is that God is jealous. And if you accept that God is jealous, and if we bring our ideas of jealousy into God's character, then perhaps you do end up with an unpleasant character, jealous and proud of it. Now, what are some words that we might use to describe someone who is Jealous. I was throughout the week thinking about that and just jotting down words that came to mind. Controlling is one word that comes to mind. Somebody who's jealous is controlling. Uh, codependent, perhaps, more of a modern word. Somebody just can't really live without the other person. They have to kind of help each other at all times and depend on each other. Needy or clingy. Um, unstable, insecure would be some other words that come to mind easily enraged, flying off the handle, that that happens when somebody's jealous, maybe even abusive, that abuse rooted in jealousy, envious or resentful, maybe petty or suspicious or overprotective. Now, all those words are often used alongside jealousy or to explain what jealousy is. And in our experience, jealousy is a character flaw it's not a plus it's not a good characteristic it's a flaw in your character you need to take care of it don't be jealous you know when i think my i have four daughters and, and two of them are marriageable age now and so uh, and, and so when i describe their future husband to them i say i want a I i want a man of substance and standing is what i want like boaz in the old testament i want a man of substance and standing I don't tell them, find the most jealous person you can. I don't, tell, I don't put jealousy on the list of character traits they need to be looking for when they're exploring potential romantic relationships. I tell them stability, substance, standing, you know, somebody who would love you the way Christ loves you. I don't bring jealousy into it. And I just thought of that, and, and I thought how, how often we think of jealousy in our world, in our culture, as, as a totally negative trait. Now, if this is our experience of jealousy, if when we think of jealousy, we think of relationships being sabotaged and you know, rivalry at work and destroyed reputations or even violence, even murder, right? If that's how we think of jealousy, what do we do with numerous places in the Bible where God is described as jealous? What do you do with that? Now, one way is to say that can't be God, this is not the God I want, and leave, like Oprah did, like Dawkins says, we all should. But I think the answer to that question is, just like with any other attribute, we need to understand jealousy in relation to God as holy jealousy, and let God define jealousy so as not to read our own twisted ideas and experiences into it. Now, we've done that with every attribute. Any attribute you take even the great attributes like love, we still have to let God define it. We can't come in with our own ideas and say, well, God must be like that because this is what I think love is, or this is what I think jealousy is, so God must be like that. No, we have to start with God, and we have to say, how does God describe that? If God himself says that he is a jealous God, what does he mean by that? And so we need to dig deeper into the Scriptures, and we need to find out what jealousy means from God's perspective, and then adjust our expectations and experiences to that. So that's what I'd like to do today. I'd like us to understand the jealousy of God as presented to us in the Bible, and I'd like us to consider how our lives can be shaped by it. I think it's actually a very, very important attribute. So first, the jealousy of God, let's understand it, and second, the faithfulness of God's people, let's apply it. Okay, so what is the context of our passage and God's revelation that his name is jealous and that he is a jealous God. Now you may remember that when Moses was on the mountain in the preceding chapters of Exodus, he received the law from God, the Ten Commandments. But during that time, even as he was communing with God, Israel fell into idolatry. They made an idol, they made a golden calf, which is something, they, they, the idea they brought with themselves from, from Egypt, it's one of the Egyptian idols. Now, God was so angry with his people that he threatened to destroy them all and start a new nation for Moses. And Moses pleaded with God. Moses, too, was very angry, by the way, angry enough that he broke the two tablets he brought down with him. And yet Moses prayed for the people and he pleaded with God not to forsake them. Remember, at one point God said, you can go into the land, but I won't go with you. I'll even send an angel with you, but I won't go with you. And Moses says, if you're not going, we're not going. And he pleaded with God, he prayed, he interceded for the people. And God, because he's a gracious and merciful God, he he responded and he renewed a covenant. He renewed his commitment to the people. In fact, Exodus 34 is that renewal of covenant with God's people. Now, you may also remember that Moses, when he was on that roll of his prayers being answered, he threw another one in. He said, Lord, show me your glory. While we're at it and you've already forgiven your people, please just show me your glory. And God said, well, I can't really show myself to you. You can't handle my presence. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'll, I'll pass by you and I will proclaim my name. That's really important that The context of this proclamation of God's jealousy is the revelation of God's name and it is the renewal of the covenant. And so God proclaimed his name. And then after that, God said, my name is Jealous because I'm a jealous God and you should worship no other gods. This is the context. The context is crucial here for understanding jealousy because when God's jealousy is brought up in Scripture, it is typically, almost always, in the context of the covenant relationship with God and usually contains a warning against idolatry. Now, the language that is used to explain the jealousy of God in Scripture is one related to marriage. Now, look at our text. God says, do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and worship their gods, meaning you are making a covenant with me. Don't make any other covenants. It's an exclusive relationship It's just you and me, and there should be no other gods, no other idols, no other worship objects here. God wants an exclusive relationship with his people like marriage. Now, in the ancient world, this was a very strange idea, which is why Israelites struggled with that for a while. The idea being that there's only one God and you are exclusively committed to him and your allegiance is all to him. In the ancient world, you had many gods. You had local deities, and when you would move to another place, like the Israelites were doing. They're moving into another land. There were a number of new gods to be honored and to, be, to worship and to serve because they're in control of that area, so now you have to make good with them. But God says, I'm the only God. You have one covenant. It's with me. It's an exclusive relationship. It's like marriage. Don't take other lovers, is what he's saying. In fact, I encourage you to look at the Ten Commandments in romantic categories. Once you put that lens on, it's amazing how much of it makes sense. It's a relational agreement. Yes, it's about obedience. Yes, it's about the law, sure. But primarily, it's a definition of relationship. And God is saying, if you're going to be with me, if I'm going to be your God, this is how it works. It's a marriage. It's an exclusive relationship. There's a priority to me. There's intimacy here. There's permanence to this. And so when you read a passage like we just read in Exodus 34... you you see that language of relationship, that language of marriage. Exclusive worship of the Lord is likened to fidelity in marriage, to faithfulness. Idolatry is likened to unfaithfulness in marriage. It's whoring after other gods. Strong language. But it it gets the point across that this is not, I'm just picking my religious commitments. This is an all-defining relationship with the only God who is there. And so don't go to other idols and other gods. So the jealousy of God, according to the Bible, has to do with God's pursuit of an exclusive and intimate covenant relationship with his people. God's jealousy, according to Scripture, so don't bring in your ideas, don't bring Oprah's ideas into it, God's idea of jealousy has to do with his pursuit of an exclusive an intimate covenant relationship with his people. God is jealous like a spouse, like a husband or a wife, who cannot stand a thought of his beloved in the arms of another lover. That's jealousy. Idolatry is a rejection of God's love, according to Scripture. It's having an affair with someone else. It's being unfaithful. It's adultery. And by the way, Read through scripture and see how often God puts adultery and idolatry together. Old and New Testament. Because when God thinks of us, he thinks of us in terms of that intimate, close marriage-like relationship. Idolatry is a rejection of his love. It's a betrayal. and God likens his relationship with us to a sexual relationship between husband and wife. Now, this is important because in our human experience, this is the closest intimacy. This is as close as you can get to somebody, is, is a sexual relationship. And God says, this is the kind of spiritual intimacy I desire with you. Completely open, vulnerable, trusting. This is the most, one of the most common metaphors for our relationship with God throughout Scripture is that sexual marital union. If you really want to feel uncomfortable, read Ezekiel 16. Read Ezekiel 16 and see how God feels and the kind of language He uses to describe His relationship with us and His pain at our sexual betrayal, at breaking that kind of intimacy. So that's the first thing I want us to understand about God's jealousy, that it's set in the context of His exclusive intimate, marital, covenant relationship with us. It's about love. Jealousy is about love. The second thing is that jealousy is a destructive force. Jealousy is a destructive force. By nature, jealousy destroys. Jealousy is weaponized love. Jealousy is violent love. Jealousy is angry love. Jealousy defends the beloved and attacks any threat to the relationship. That's what jealousy is. Jealousy is love with the gloves off. It's an expression of love. This is God acting completely consistent with his exclusive relationship, his exclusive commitment to us, and it it works itself out in jealousy, which is a destructive force. Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24 says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is God describing himself. He says, I am a consuming fire, a jealous God. You break the covenant. There is violence and destruction that comes out of that love. Zephaniah 1.18 says... Neither their silver nor their gold should be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. It is the fire of his jealousy. And in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end will, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Jealousy is likened to fire. It's a destructive force. Jealousy consumes, it destroys, it, it attacks, it's violent. Now, if you look up passages on God's jealousy throughout the Bible, you will find that it often parallels God's anger. Anger and jealousy seem to, seem to be hand-in-hand in and in parallel in a lot of the, especially in the, in the Hebrew portion of the Bible. Psalm 79.5, for example, says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Now, this is a poetic way to put the same idea into two lines. Will you you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Jealousy and anger together, because jealousy is an angry love. Anger, too, is a destructive force. In its pure form, anger is a reaction against anything evil or wrong. Anger means to, to restore things as they're supposed to be. Jealousy, then, is a reaction against anything that threatens love. It means to restore and protect love. Now, even as I'm saying that, I, I feel that, and I'm sure you do too, that when I talk about a violent emotion, when I talk about destructive force of jealousy, we're saying there's something that's not right with that. That doesn't seem right, that love would be violent like that, that love would be destructive like that, that love would be like a consuming fire. Even though Scripture says that, we can't quite reconcile that with our understanding of how love should work. But the problem is that in our experience of jealousy, we know that it's a destructive force, but in our experience, it almost always destroys the wrong thing. Sinful human jealousy is almost never about love. We violently defend pride or control or reputation, but rarely love. Divine jealousy is always about love. That's the difference. Now, any jealousy is a violent force. Any jealousy is a destructive force by nature. That's what it is. But the right kind of jealousy uses that violence and destruction to protect love. The right kind of jealousy uses that violence and destruction to protect other things. And in fact, it destroys love. It pushes love out. This is why we react so strongly when we hear things like God is a jealous God. We think about jealousy that destroys love, that pushes it out, that extinguishes that. That's what we think of because we've had those experiences. I mean, you're familiar with the dynamic. A jealous boyfriend is always suspicious, always doubting his girlfriend's love always insecure in her affection, constantly demanding proof of her loyalty. What typically happens with that relationship? It implodes. It self-destructs. Because that jealousy, being a destructive force, is is now actually directed towards the person and towards the relationship, and it destroys it. It becomes so oppressive, so abusive, that it just explodes. Now, human jealousy is often self-destructive. But God's jealousy preserves love, defends it, nurtures it, and fights for it. I like J.A. Packer's definition. Packer says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a literally praiseworthy zeal to preserve Something supremely precious. It's not a bad definition of jealousy. It's a zeal to preserve something supremely precious. God's jealousy is his intense desire to preserve his covenant relationship with his people. And he does it through destruction. That's the third thing I want us to understand about divine jealousy. One, it's about love, the context is covenant relationship. It's about exclusive marriage-type relationship with God. Two, it's a destructive force. And three, it preserves love through destruction. Now let's go to the New Testament. We already saw that in the Old Testament there's a lot of talk about destroying idols or destroying the enemies of God's beloved. So we see that, that destruction coming to save. But it really, the meaning is really opened up for us in the New Testament, and especially, I think, John 2, and then we'll go to another passage after that, but in John 2 we read about Jesus cleansing the temple. Now you remember that. Jesus comes to the temple to worship, to pray. He sees greed. He sees injustice. By the way, ethnic injustice, racial injustice. He sees God's worship not being what it's supposed to be. There's anger. That's a natural reaction. That's the right reaction. When something isn't the way it's supposed to be, And Jesus reacts, and he reacts violently. Makes a whip, turns tables over, drives people out. Now, this is is an example of, of divine anger. This is an example of divine jealousy, as I'll show you in a second. The disciples who are observing that right away recall a passage from the Old Testament. They're thinking of Psalm 69, 9, that says, Zeal for your house will consume me zeal for your house will consume me. Now zeal is just a different translation of jealousy. It's the same Hebrew word. So jealousy for your house will consume me. They're looking at Jesus violently driving people out of the temple. And they're saying, this is jealousy, this is zeal, this is God's anger consuming Jesus. They're making that connection. The disciples observe Jesus' violent behavior, and they're interpreting it as Jesus burning with jealousy for the pure worship of God, for the covenant relationship between God and His people, and they're saying this is God's zeal, this is God's jealousy on display. Rooted in love, coming out in destruction and violence and force, and yet trying to restore and preserve what God gave us, his worship, his relationship, his revelation. But that's not the end of that incident. It's important to connect the dots that right after Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2, he prophesies about his death. Remember that he talks about the destruction and the resurrection and the rebuilding of the temple. And of course, he's not talking about the literal temple, he's talking about his body, he's talking about the destruction of his body and the resurrection of his body, the resurrection from death. And so what's the connection? The connection is the cross. The cross is God's preservation of his love for us through destruction. It's through destruction. It's through violence. But in this case, salvation and and restoration of love, and protection of love, it doesn't come through the destruction of idols, as God commanded in, in Exodus 34, or the destruction of the enemies of God's people, or even the destruction of the divine beloved, of the adulterous spouse. What happens here is the destruction of the divine lover in place Of his unfaithful bride. The jealousy of God has preserved love through death, through violence, through destruction, because on the cross, the jealous bridegroom gave his life for his unfaithful bride. And instead of destroying her, which would make sense, love that's rejected comes out in destruction, comes out in violence. But instead of that, Jesus was destroyed to a much greater degree than at the temple on that day in John 2. Jesus was consumed by divine jealousy for his people. He was thrown into the fire of God's jealousy. He was engulfed in God's anger. And through his destruction... We are made pure and holy, never to lose the love of our God. This is where all these ideas come together. It's on the cross. This is what Ephesians 5 teaches us. Paul says in verses 25 and 26 and 27, he says, husbands, love your wives. Again, making that connection between marriage, sexual intimacy, the deep, permanent, exclusive relationship in in human terms and Christ's love for the church. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He was destroyed for the church. He gave his life for the adulteress. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is God's jealousy. This is what it means when God says, my name is jealous, I am a jealous God. It means that he is willing to be destroyed to keep our relationship to keep our love, and not just to keep it, but to purify it and to present us as holy and blameless and without blemish and pure to himself. So he can keep loving us. This is why jealousy is important. This is why we need to believe that God is a jealous God. This is not a lesser attribute. This is at the very center of who God is and how he loves us. It's not enough to know that he loves us. We need to know how he loves us. And He loves us with a jealous love that is a consuming fire. And that fire is so consuming that Jesus Himself was consumed by it so that He can purify us because that fire, having done its work on Jesus, has now become safe for us and it's become a purifying fire, a refining fire for us. The cross of Jesus is the culmination of the violent jealousy of God and the sure hope of preservation of our covenant relationship with Him. I wonder if you believe in the gospel of the cross. I wonder if you believe in the violent jealousy of God being spilled over onto Jesus, engulfing Him in God's wrath so we can be made pure and holy. Amen. Let's talk about how to apply this. So let's assume for a second we understand in basic terms what God's jealousy is from Scripture. We have abandoned our ideas of our experience of jealousy, and we see it as an expression of His love, as a destructive force, as as something that works itself to salvation through destruction. Let's say we get this. Now what does it mean for me today? If God is a jealous God, we are to be faithful people. If God is a jealous God, we are to be faithful people. That's the the counterpoint to that. If He is jealous, we are to be faithful. If He's a jealous God, we are to be faithful people. God demands exclusive allegiance to Him. He says in our text, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Because God is jealous, because this is who he is, we are not to worship any other God. Now let me give you three points of application here. Number one, rest in his jealous love. Rest in his jealous love. Again, in our experience of jealousy in relationship, it's disturbing, it's chaotic, it's unpredictable, but in God's jealousy there is rest and comfort for us. Rest in His jealous love. God loves us with such intensity, with such passion, with such desire, with such power, that we can trust Him to keep loving us. He's not going to stop loving you because He's a jealous God. He feels it deeply. He pursues it with his whole power and his whole character. Meditate on his love. Consider how deeply he loves us. Think about the cross of Christ as the irrefutable proof of his covenant love for you. And trust the cross. Trust the cross as a violent expression of his jealousy for you to keep that relationship intact, to make sure that he will keep loving you, trust the cross. Now there's a great passage in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about jealousy in a slightly different way, but I'll make the connection. Second Corinthians eleven two and 3. Paul says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Notice how he has to say divine jealousy just to not confuse us, that he's not being crazy, he's not being insecure and overprotective, even though... I think a case could be made in that portion of 2 Corinthians. He may be a little bit. But he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is saying this love, of God, This jealous love, this cross-shaped love of God is so precious, it's so full, it's so rich. I'm giving it to you and I'm betrothing you. I want you to be engaged to Christ. I want you to be married to Christ. So rest in that love. And don't listen to any other ideas. Don't listen to other teachings. Just trust the cross. Trust your bridegroom. Trust that Jesus will love you. It's a divine jealousy for others. We must all feel that. To the degree that we ourselves rest in God's love, we are motivated to share that love with others. In words and deeds and attitudes, if we are resting in His love, in His jealous love, we know how big it is, we know how important it is, I want to betroth other people to Christ. I want to tell them. I want to share that with them. There's a missional implication here. Now, secondly, so first, rest in his jealous love. Secondly, repent of idolatry. Repent of idolatry. Verse 13 in Exodus 34 says, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherine. Are there things in your life that you have placed above the Lord? Are you serving other masters? Have you made covenants with other gods? Is your heart divided? Is your devotion to Christ sincere and pure? Consider your life and repent from your idolatry. Now, notice what God says here. This this is not, you know, think about it, consider it, and see maybe... You are an idolater. He's saying, go and cut down the altars and tear down their poles. Go and find those influences in your life. Go and find your idols and get rid of them. There's an urgency here. Why? Because he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He cannot stand another moment of you in an adulterous relationship with someone or something else. And so he's saying, repent. Repent. James 4 has a similar message for us from the New Testament. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Are you friends with the world? Have you given your worship to one of the local idols like comfort and acceptance and materialism and consumerism or political anger or celebrity or family, whatever that is, our land is full of idols too. And God has placed us here, and God says, pay attention. And when they come to you and they invite you to worship their gods, you don't go and you don't sacrifice to them. You hold true to the one covenant with me. Now, let me give you really quickly a diagnostic set of questions to explore what's in our hearts and see where we may have taken idols into our hearts. Three questions What do you think about first? What do you think about most? And what do you think when you don't have anything else to think about? What do you think about first when you wake up? What's on your mind? What consumes your thinking, your imagination? What do you think about a lot? What's on your mind a lot? And then finally, when your mind is not occupied with anything else, you don't have work, you don't have school, you're not reading, you're not watching TV, whatever. It's just open. Where does your mind go? What are you thinking about when you don't have to think about anything? Now, I will guarantee to you that if you spend five minutes answering these questions today, you will find, if not actual idols, but many potential idols. You will find many things that draw your affection from the Lord. And you need to know that, and I need to know that so we can fight them, so we can tear down those altars. Repent from your idolatry. And number three, Final point, renew your love relationship with the Lord. Renew your love relationship with the Lord. If He is jealous for you, are you zealous for Him? If God is jealous for you, are you zealous for Him? Think about your relationship with God. What is it like? Does your faithfulness match His jealousy for you? Are you responding to his desire, to his passion, to his power, to his intensity? You know how much he loves you. Are you loving him back? Are you engaging in this deeper intimacy with him? There's a movie called The Painted Veil based on a Graham Greene novel. And there's a a great scene there where an old nun who committed her life to the care of the sick and dying in China. She's a missionary. She sacrificed everything. And she shares her story with a young woman who is struggling in her marriage. Mother Superior says, I fell in love when I was 17 with God. A foolish girl with romantic notions about the life of a religious. But my love was passionate. Over the years, my feelings have changed. He's disappointed me. Ignored me. We've settled into a relationship of peaceful indifference. The old husband and wife who sit side by side on the sofa but rarely speak. He knows I'll never leave him. This is my duty. But when love and duty are one, then grace is within you. When love and duty are one, then grace is within you. Your relationship with God may very well be just duty. You're not going to leave him. You know the benefits. You've committed your life to him. You've sacrificed for him. But is there love as well? Is there love in your relationship with God? If he is a jealous God, are you zealous for him? If he has such an intense desire for you, Such an intense desire that Jesus was destroyed on the cross to preserve this desire, to preserve this relationship. What are you doing whoring after other gods? What are you doing not responding to him? What are you doing being satisfied with just duty, just obedience, just observance? Renew your love relationship with the Lord. Now, we're actually going to do that when we come to the table. If you're a believer, you don't have to be part of our church, you just have to be part of Christ, but I encourage you to take communion with us if you are part of Christ, if you are His follower. And as you do that, I want you to think about communion as a renewal of wedding vows. Because that's what it is. It's a regular connection with Him. It's a regular reminder of how much He loves us. It's a regular commitment of saying, I will love you, help me, I will love you, help me stay faithful to you. So let me read a passage from 1 Corinthians 10, one that I don't usually read before we take communion, but it's in the same section of the Bible that leads to communion, it explains communion to us. Let me read it to you, I want you to listen, and I want you to meditate, and I want you to look at your heart, and I want you to ask those questions about idolatry. And as you listen to this, be ready to renew your vows, to renew your love relationship with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 and following. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the, same, of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he?